All right, so, so at the Emerging Industries panel, you know who you are. Um, and then since we're tight, uh, if, if Peter and, and, uh, and Jason can come up, we're going to talk. We can actually answer that question. But we're going to talk about AI. We have somebody from Google who's going to give you insights on quantum, different than you think. So the MIT, come on in, come on in. Nope. You'll talk at the breaks. Come on in. J Jason, Jason, come on in. Quickly, quickly. All right. So there was that question. We're going to answer that during the course. Watch it. So I don't want to an don't answer this question right now, but introduce yourselves quickly. Who who you are and what what you. Peter's on his way. Again, Peter, this is a merged panel, but you can speak about anything. You said you did say that, right? Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot to talk about. Let's let's just introduce yourselves for 30, 40 seconds since everybody knows who you are. Here we go. Hey, my name's Austin Fowler. I work for Google. So I'm in quantum computing. I'm part of their team of 200 plus researchers trying to build a quantum computer for them. I've been doing this for over 20 years. I'm a hands-on researcher. So if you're interested in the technical detail, Austin, one quick. If you want to go outside, there's, let's, we have that squeaky door. I would prefer you to go through, the, through another angle. And, and be tougher, Angela. Okay. Sorry, Austin, go. If you're interested in what a quantum computer really is, what it can really do, which is extremely different from what you've been told it really is and what it really can do, hit me up, LinkedIn, in person. I'll be happy to tell you. Quantum computers are much harder to build than people say they are and have far fewer applications than people say they do. You know, we have been at this for 30 years. Quantum computing started in 994, it's 2024. In this year, we hope to prove it is possible to build a quantum computer. That's reality. That's our goal at Google. There is no hardware you can buy anywhere in the world that can build a quantum computer yet. We do not know how to make money with a quantum computer yet. It is still hope. 20 years down the track, maybe different. Cost? Billion dollars a year at Google at the moment, probably rising. All right, so start up, good luck. We're, we're not going to have the money. We're jumping over, P P Peter, Jason. We're going to continue on that theme. Okay. The who, you, who are you? I am Patricia Gailey. Um, a few of you have already heard my um, introduction before. Uh, Co-founder of C10 Labs, an AI venture studio. Uh, venture studio is a company that builds companies. We're building AI-first companies, uh, sector agnostic, um, working um, to build 10 companies per year. I have my co-founder, Shahid Asim, sitting here as well. Wave your hand. <laughs> um, we're an MIT spin-out, and as mentioned before, MIT would be one of the uh, 10 largest countries in the world as measured by value it has created out of more than 50 unicorns. Um, and looking at the stats, benchmarks for Venture Studios, we're um, planning to create two unicorns in the next uh, three-year deployment period. Um, so, yep. We're actually going to go back to Peter. So, you heard, you've heard the sort of the big tech. Now you've got like, like this venture studio tech. It's part of the future to solve things, right? Now, you are macro and micro I and you're your philanthropy. I am all over the map. Yes. That's the advantage. And by the way, go blue, right? Yes, go blue. There was a bummer, la bummer last night about the Lions, but yeah. uh, one of the great pleasures was being in Houston. My son works for the Rockets, so, and taking my daughter, my oldest just had a baby, so going to the national championship. Okay, 30 seconds. So I guess uh, my claim to fame is I was a founding partner at Tudor, and we, right now, I wanted to talk about next generation philanthropy uh, here because everybody comes to these places and the philosophy, generally speaking, is more money is better than good. But I've never been to, I've never seen a hearse with a luggage rack on it. So I think that there's sort of better ways to, to do things. The other part that I'm doing down here in Florida is I'm a GP in a new AI hedge fund, which is hopefully we're negotiating being seated by, which is very excited, by uh, one of the first investors 
in Renaissance. So I think the technology is pretty cool, but that's a whole other conversation that we can bullshit about for hours. But really, the but most important thing is really talking about philanthropy, how important it is, not only for you, because if you give it away, you'll make it, you'll feel better, and it's fantastic uh, for your children, unless you're super rich and you can buy them a sports team. We've seen that, too. Okay. So I want to come back to that, but keep going. Jason. Yeah, you're right. Oh, my turn? Okay, 30 seconds. I guess I'm the only uh, a speaker on the same panel uh, in Naples. We had a, we had a blast there. Um, 30 seconds. So, so much of a blast, we wrote a song. What's that? That's a, right. A song came out of the, the round table. Naples we, we Rit. Might have to, we might have to show it today. Right, Naples Rit, right? So rationale, reasoning, impact, and transparency, and like that. So uh, two companies. I'm building another. been in tech for 40 years in Silicon Valley, global Silicon Valley. And through my career, I travel somewhere over two, maybe approaching three million miles lost track, seeing the world a little bit here. So building another very exciting tech company, uh, Miss Stage Now. Um, the second company that I have is my fun business, is my uh, family business called 3EQ. Very big on impact, very big on next gens. And a whole bunch of you know me as the chief mentor of next gen leaders that range literally from high school kids, high achievers, college kids to Sometimes middle-aged, gray-haired CEOs tap my shoulder and say, Jason, I'm a student now. And uh, the other minor part is my activities, mostly philanthropy. I sit on the – I've been in the G20, B20 for 10 years. So it feels philanthropical because B20 represents the global business community as, as the official arm in the G20. And I've been sitting on the future of work and education and skills and employment task force for 10 years. I've seen few, quite a bit. And our product is really to push policy recommendations to the presidents and prime ministers, and we get the, their attention and their governments, okay. um, and uh, plus other philanthropy. And then somebody actually creates things, which is Hank. I actually create things. <clears throat> um, so I actually own a, a goose that lays the golden eggs. It's called Tetris. Um, I used to be in the game business. My daughter runs it now. Um, since then, I've switched over to being an environmentalist. I read a newspaper article somewhere right after my heart attack that said that we were going to kill all the coral in the world. And so I said, no, we're not. I was living in Hawaii at the time. I put Hawaii on track to 100% renewable energy. I w the people of Hawaii went from it's impossible to, of course, we're doing this. That's the, wor that's the change I need to see in the world. Uh, part of the change that needs to happen is um, intermittent renewal, renewables need to be backed up by energy storage. And so even though I said I wasn't going to start another business, I did. I'm in the energy storage business. Blue Planet Energy. So let me go back to Peter. It is an uh-oh. So if you, you've been at the forefront of, of, of thinking about philanthropy, and I like that you have this innovative approach. You've, you've also talked about having a venture-like portfolio, lab-like, you know, because it's, it's we're not very innovative in philanthropy. Uh, but how do you see the landscape, and how should we be thinking about the landscape? That's uh, first of all, it's a great question. I just want to re respond to Jack. You know, the notion of me trying to Jack's not up here. What? You mean Jason? Jason, or Hank? sorry, sorry. To my the, the notion, yeah, <laughs> the notion of me trying to mentor people is is a joke because in our business, if you want to innovate in anything, you always have to believe you're young. So I look in the mirror every day. My hair is still 100% blonde, so uh, I'm never gonna get old. But what never gets old is innovation. And the thing about most philanthropy, so. In private sector, if you try something, you fail. Hey, it's okay. You fail. In the government policy, if you try something and you fail, it's incompetent government. So what we try to do in philanthropy is try to be somewhere in between, right? Can we try something? Can we innovate something? And if it works, is it then scalable for other philanthropists, but more importantly, for government, because as hard as we try, private philanthropy is not going to replace public philanthropy. But we can fail, so we can try 
to innovate, all sorts of different things, whether it's on the technology side, whether it's on the programmatic side. At Robinhood, you know, we were the first funders of charter schools because we believe in, in, in competition. And as you all know, if you have kids and they're not doing well, you're going to give them extra resources. Well, we felt, okay, let's do that. You know, so that's sort of where it is. It's an innovation spectrum. We sort of define the term guerrilla philanthropy. But when you talk about that, that seems like the Courtney Carrera or um, Michael Carrera's system right. a little bit, one of our mutual friends. So, yes, Michael. So this goes way back to Carrera Dempsey program. So when Robinhood first started, think about it in the late 80s. Uh, and you could see there was really a problem. It was part of the crack epidemic. There was a, a health deprivation. And the other thing that was really huge was uh, teen pregnancy. And Robinhood decided that the one thing you can't do is you can't get into advocacy. We're not ever going to convince a pro-choice that they should be pro-life, or you're never going to convince a pro-life to be pro-choice. But what everybody can agree upon is that if you can postpone teen pregnancy, you are going to help three generations, the woman, the kid, and the grandparents. And the innovation on this program was Carrera Dempsey brought that together. And they also said, you know what? Even with AI, you still need two people to make a baby. And that means you have to have teenage men involved if you're going to have teenage mothers. You need to focus on the men as well as the women, and that was one of the innovation. And teen pregnancy, fortunately, has gone down significantly. I think Patricia wants to add on. Thank you very much. Those were um, great comments. Um, just building on what you said in terms of philanthropy, uh, programming, um, and, and what you choose to do, um, I want to highlight artificial intelligence as one of the important tools actually to optimize the value of this money. I, let me take you back just two years um, when I worked uh, with the White House Initiative supporting uh, Central America. And let's go to Hoyabach, a small village in Guatemala, 100,000 people. Um, they had more migrants from Hoyabach and absolute numbers than the entire city of Guatemala City, two million people. Why is that? It was a donor darling and philanthropies, everyone wanted to be in Hoyabach. Um, in one year, you would have uh, companies who, who were trying to start losing half of their staff. Um, they lost 30% of their students to migration as well. Um, and. And even though all these hundreds of, I, I myself has been at the, I've been at the World Bank for 12 years working with international development. But even then, um, with all these hundreds of philanthropies, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that everyone is, you know, doing the wrong thing, but I, World Bank included, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, it just didn't work, right? So that means we don't know what people need and what they want, right? Because it's individual. There are so many different values that play into this. It's climate shocks. It's, um, it's hunger. It's, um, it's lack of infrastructure. It's violence. It's, it's drug trafficking. But all those different things compound and it's also not just one country, right? It's, it's individual um, by, by different areas. So what we did was actually to build an artificial intelligence machine learning tool that could help optimize this and really provide entirely new insights. <laughs> so I did not plan to hear, and then I'm going to shut up for the other people on the panel. February 6th, Robin Hood is hosting uh, an AI conference on how it can be used in this space, uh, being chaired by uh, Alexis Ohanian, who, as you know, the founder of Reddit, who recently joined the board of Robinhood, so thank you for that. I will give you the money under the table later. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to cover the uh, the concept that uh, uh, philanthropy um, has something to do with the behavior of government. Um, so when I got started uh, trying to end use of carbon-based fuel in Hawaii, I went straight to the government. We went straight to the politicians, and basically they didn't give us the time of day. 
and you know it's it's what what are you talking about and the electric company says this is how we make electricity etc 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 all that pushback so um we ended up having to go to the people to get support um and the way to get to the people is through the children by the way we had we had elementary school school children go door to door and exchange 300,000 light bulbs thereby explaining to uh, the occupant of the house uh, the difference between uh, an LED and an incandescent light bulb in terms of safety. He's underwater. Uh, and this brought, um, how can I say, um, awareness to, to the issue. And so little by little, we got the people on our side. And then the people pushed the politicians. And when we saw our chance to make a maneuver, we did, and we passed a, a law that says Hawaii has to be 100% renewable energy by 2045. We followed it up by changing the business model of the utility so they make more money by switching to renewables. And as a result, today Hawaii is at 36% renewable energy. Now that's from, from pretty much zero. If, if we went from no, it can't be done to yes, it's going to be done. And that just proves to me that we can take any jurisdiction in the world and change it from no, we can't to yes, we are. And that requires uh, philanthropy. It requires energy. It requires determination. So when it comes to climate change, people ask me if I have hope. And I say, no, I do not have hope. I have determination. Mark, are we still in philanthropy, or we're we're in a hybrid world right now, <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to okay. make it even more hybrid in a second. Okay, okay, I guess we'll 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 wing it here. Um, in no, 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 I, I'm happy to 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 guide it because one of the things that I like about Hank mm. is that we can invest in this. Because the one thing that I don't like about, and this is we can talk about. You know, if, if you could find an impact investment that could solve a problem, that's much better. Because uh, then you have to go back to the well again. And I, maybe I just, you know, because you're multidimensional, Peter. Like, how, do, how should we be thinking about impact investing in light? Some things you need the career programs and the support. But there's some things that we can be doing, uh, you know, from an impact perspective. And, and Hank is an example of that, right? And you – and even I think – Deep tech is an example of that. In fact, some of the best things that have happened in the world, unfortunately, come out of war and, and the wartime mentality we've had. Well, the thing is the difference between sort of impact investing and, and, and philanthropy is Hank's super successful, right? I feel honored every time if I'm on a panel with him. And he starts something that's impact – and he can invest a lot of money, and then he can go out there and raise other money. Most people that get involved in philanthropy, they don't have those resources. And so the arbitrage right now for a lot of philanthropies, right, is tax arbitration. You create a donor advice fund. You put some stock two days before it's going to go public in a Roth IRA just coincidentally, and then it goes public, and now you have a lot of money. Uh, and you can do these things. So they're really two separate paths. They're both excellent paths. But impact investing, as we've seen, to a large extent, has gotten to this uh, political quagmire, right? God forbid, you know, that we do something that helps people who are less fortunate, underrepresented, uh, you know, women who aren't there, right? You just look at the top of the CEO list of the Fortune 500. So – that then becomes a little bit controversial. Philanthropy in itself is not controversial. I think Jason may want to add to that. Yeah, ab absolutely. One of um, I'm um, you know in my activity, even the B20, G20 feels a bit uh, philanthropic because we feel that indirectly through the governments we help roll the masses, billions of people, uh, indirectly or directly, and then the G20 governments literally implement part of our policies, our recommendations. Now, on other part of philanthropy, for example, St. Jude is one, one of my favorite. I'm a council member there, and their OPEX is literally over $2 billion per year. Did you guys know that? 
and it's mostly from private donors on a yearly basis. So I say that if God's not behind that, I don't know what it is, right? So a lot of young people that I observe, and I mentor so many high achievers, is that young people are good-hearted. They're well-intentioned. They want to save the world, climate, sustainability, all the terms, right? But a lot of them are a little bit too quick to jump onto bandwagons without understanding really how the world works. It's kind of like a lot of young people, Gen Zs, right? Oh, my gosh, they are so good and fast when it comes to using tech apps. But a lot of them have no idea how the technologies work. But it's kind of good to understand what, how the world really works. So St. Jude is an example. You know, you're really impacting these families that are disadvantaged, right? Kids, cancers, is lifelong protection here. And they barely not, don't even work with insurance company. That's a great thing. And, and uh, you know, Peter, you mentioned about donor advice funds. Not all, not everyone's a billionaire, right? And so it's kind of like a nice way to outsource your giving. It's kind of like having your own 5003C, but you don't have to set one up and donate through them. You can literally dictate the charities that you like to donate to. I think it's a great way, right? And then, for example, Silicon Valley Community Foundation, it's, a, it's the country's biggest uh, community fund. They have like $16 billion in, uh, in unemployment, and then they give like over $2 billion per year to California or something like that. And you just set it up very quickly. You could donate through them. And it's very convenient for you. So there's many ways to skin a cat. But i got to challenge that a little bit because I think the reason we haven't set up we – set, we started to set up a foundation two years ago. And I stopped it because I'm not smart enough. To, I don't want to take responsibility to allocate. I want to learn and take inventory. So when you do these donor-advised funds, you could be in a silo. You're not really enlightened. So what Robin does is they have a process. Yes. That's what I like about funds and how you invest. Right. That's what I was hoping you were going to talk about, Peter. I, I think, the, the, Peter, the, if I could, I want you to talk about that discipline sure. that you have sure. at Robinhood. If I could add quickly to that, Robinhood's got a lot of resources, right? You're really leveraging on your resources. It's a great way to do things on a much more massive scale. And DAFs is sort of kind of silo. And, and human capital resources, it's a community. But Robin has always had the challenge. So when we started Robin, just to give you an idea, 1988, the first year, we gave away $65,000 to three organizations. Last year, we gave away over $130 million. And we don't have an endowment. We had to raise that money every year. But now as people get older, we're going to need to have an endowment because our rule is if you give us a dollar – that dollar goes out the door in the next 12 months, right? We, we the board members, pay for the overhead. So I, I remember that part, but talk about your process of, of selecting. Right. So the selection process, so now we want to partner. We want to partner with donor-advised funds so they can look to us as they're outsourcing, you know, due diligence process for not-for-profits because, again, the key for any organization is human capital. Not me, of course. We have tremendous staff people. We go out. We do the site visits. We meet with everything that you think you would need to do on a VC investment. It's the same thing that we do prior to a philanthropic investment. Is the organization sustainable? Is the leadership good? Is it growing? Can it scale? Right. We've had some crazy-ass uh Ideas over the years, in the early days, uh, we had a woman that was a recovering prostitute, and she was literally running out into the Lincoln Tunnel giving away contraceptives to women there so to help uh, prevent the spread of AIDS. And we thought, wow, that's brilliant because other women will speak to her. They respect her, and they do that. And the leverage, of course, of preventing transmittable diseases is unbelievable. But she never wanted to grow. She never wanted to do anything more than go out there every night and, and, and do that. It wasn't scalable, as Jason just said. So that was not the Robin Hood model. But we do, right? Think about it. Uh, where's John, right? He was here. Buy, sell, hold. Do you buy an organization? Do you get rid of the organization? Or you just go and keep it at the same size? That's the hardest thing in any portfolio when to sell. And we have to go through all that. And if you don't have good staff, it's never going to happen. So, yeah, Austin. 
Adele, or Patricia, then Oscar. Just wanted to follow up on the impact investing. So as a concrete example, I personally invest in crowdsource renewable. I own a megawatt of power in Brazil, right? So, you know, you don't just have to be a researcher. You can also do that. The world needs money that's willing to accept lower returns to do good, right? You're not going to make 20 30% in a solar power panel stage, but you can make 8 to 15 So there's a great company I'd like to give a shout-out to, Energia. They let people invest as little as 100 bucks. You can also invest millions if you wish to get involved in crowdsource renewable energy. I think they do a great job, and they need a lot, lot more capital that's willing to accept a lower return, good, but lower, and get them scaled up. You only need it. Patricia? And then we're going to trans transition for one last speaker. Yeah, very good comment. Um, I didn't catch the name of that, but I will. I will. Okay, very, very good comment. Um, I also wanted to follow up on just the issue of in investment and, and the fact that this is a, a tech panel. Hybrid. Um, hybrid. Yeah, hybrid. <laughs> so um, the use of, of AI and actually evaluating um, the impact um, and whether people perceive it as an impact because, as it turns out, most often there's actually a discrepancy between what we think is impactful and what is perceived as impact. Um, and that's actually one of the things that we're developing with our uh, venture studio as well. And the class we taught at MIT, um, a, a trust chain to be able to actually um, have sort of, if you will, a Yelp for um, evaluating all the projects and, and the results and whether it was actually implemented. So. I just want to talk about scalability briefly. So. Uh, 13 other states in the U.S., including California, Illinois, and New York, have copied our legislation of 100% renewable energy by some date. Uh, so that seems to be going reasonably well. Um, outside the U.S., it's not going as well. So we've started an effort. We're bringing island countries to Hawaii to show them what we did in Hawaii and to teach them how to work together. We bring uh, somebody from the government, somebody from the utility, somebody from the, the PUC, the regulator, and somebody from the community. And the, it's the first time that some of these people are in the same room talking to each other. We, we have talk, speak, uh, talks by the governor of the time when we signed the bill, we, uh, the politicians, the heads of the utility, and all of the renewable energy companies. So they get to see what our secret sauce is. And so it is scalable. We just have to teach other islands how to, or eventually other countries. My, my dream is to have every country in the world have a mandate of 100% renewable energy by 2045. It's the 100th anniversary of the United Nations. What better time to decide to end climate change? And if we don't set a, if we don't set a deadline, it's never going to happen. We need to set a deadline. If we're going to do any project, and this is just another project. And, you know, if you, we talk the war example, it's in, in World War II, we went from biplanes to jet planes. We, we invented sonar, radar. Uh, we invented the atom bomb, uh, cruise missiles, missiles. Uh, that's in 1940s technology. This is you, 2024. You have just done another perfect segue. There ain't no, nothing no, no. we can't do. So, so we have, I want to add one more seat, another virtuoso um, speaker. If, if General Tata could, could comment. I cede my time. I can actually solve climate change. Um, boy, it's a company based in Ohio. Does anyone know any company based in Ohio that has a fund that can help a company well, based in Ohio? We have one. So, so yes. So if you could just introduce yourself. And then Hi, I'm Tony Tata, a retired Army General, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Um, Mark invited me down here to talk very briefly about current events, how they might impact the markets, and so forth. And always looking for folks to do deals with, and it's great to see so many friends here, Mark and John. And after the bullishness of that panel, I called my broker-dealer and said, sell everything. Uh, so uh, uh, so um, everybody's waking up to the news of three U.S. servicemen and women killed, our servicemen killed in uh, Jordan along the Syrian border. 
Uh, it is symbolic of what's been happening for the last six months there, uh, really even before the October 7th attack. Uh, the Iran is behind uh, funding Shia militia groups, uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, Shia militia groups in Syria, uh, in Iraq, and then, of course, the Houthi rebels that are disrupting the supply chains uh, around the Horn of Africa into the Red Sea, into the Arabian Gulf, and so forth. Uh, so uh, what, what I see, and I do a fair amount of commentating on a variety of different uh, networks and cable news shows, is that we have not uh, been deterring Iran uh, the way that we were previously. And we had what was called maximum pressure, leveraging every element of national power, whether it's diplomatic, information-based, military, economic, on Iran and strangling them with sanctions. Uh, uh, new, new folks came in, said that's a, not the direction we want to go, which is entirely their right, and they removed Yemen from the terrorist watch list. Uh, they lifted or quit enforcing the sanctions on Iran, and in particular, um, not enforcing the sanction on them selling oil to China, which gives them billions and billions of dollars a year, paid $6 billion for um, uh, six hostages. Uh, now there are more hostages held in Iranian captivity than before in, in Gaza. So you can see that uh, there's been a um, uh, policy of wanting to do business with Iran, and you can kind of see – um, my opinion is when someone says death to America or death to Israel that we ought to believe exactly what they say and they mean what they say. All of that is to say that we have a very destabilized Middle East right now that is disrupting supply chains. Maersk has said they're going to quit for the foreseeable future, uh, potentially moving through uh, the Suez Canal. Uh, and that, that really extends supply chains. Think about a couple of years ago when it was all jammed up just as we were coming out of COVID. And our national defense strategy really focuses on Russia, China, uh, but we're spending all our money in the Middle East. And so when you have a misalignment of budget, and as the undersecretary, um, I was a guy that put contested logistics into the defense planning guidance. Defense planning guidance takes uh, strategic vision for the military and defense department and aligns it with the budget that the National Defense Authorization Act uh, uh, authorizes. And so um, it, you can just see what a little bit, what some Houthi rebels can do to shipping through the lanes now uh, around the uh, Horn of Africa. Now imagine what the Chinese Navy can do around Taiwan with what's in Taiwan? Taiwan Semiconductor. Uh, remember how hard it was to buy a car a couple of years ago? Think about if, uh, you know, I don't think, personally, I don't believe China's going to invade Taiwan. Having said that, they'll do it tomorrow. But the, the um, I, I think what they'll do is sort of a Hong Kong-style type of soft takeover, and, and they may militarily blockade it. They may do some other things. But think about if we get constrained on Taiwan Semiconductor. What do you got, Samsung and Intel? The Ohio thing that we're building is four or five years out. Think about that. And and so when I think about defense, yeah, so, you know, defense, I, I think John said, yeah, defense is a great place to put money because uh, the world is very troubled right now. But I also look at, think about what happened going back to how I started in um, Jordan slash Syria at Tower 22 that was a drone that came in, and the U.S. military has been trying to solve counter-drone technology for – I ran the counter-IED program, uh, improvised explosive device program, 2007 to 2009, and we were trying to solve the counter-drone program uh, plan um, threat then. Enemy flies a low-slow um, uh, drone in, in at you, and – it's got a mortar shell in it. This was a little bit obviously bigger. It killed three and wounded about 40. Uh, but how do you know the air traffic control? So if there are companies, and I know there are, that are trying to crack the code 
on counter drone and using radars and FLIR and, and everything, that's a company that I would invest in uh, if you're looking at thinking about investments. And, of course, ammunition, we're, we're riding on the axle on ammunition. And um, I know that talking about wars and defense and all that is not consistent with what we were just talking about, but in a way it might be because every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine at their heart, they're humanitarian out there on the front lines trying to represent the United States as best they can and, and giving that young child water, food, etc. And that's when the American soldier is at his or her best and happiest. So I'll shut up there and um, turn it over back to Mark. Oh, wow. Well, what most scares me is that I think we've had at least four, if not five, intelligence failures. One in Afghanistan, for sure. They didn't know how fast the Taliban was going to move. Uh, Russia, Ukraine, they wanted to give Zelensky a ride out um, because they thought Russia was going to own Ukraine in 72 hours. Um, uh, Hamas and, and uh, attacking in Israel, we have... Um, assets there that uh, you know, I can't say a whole lot about, but we, we have responsibilities in that regard. Totally miss that. The southern border, what's happening there? We have really no visibility. It's kind of a um, Rumsfeld. I'm not a fan of Rumsfeld, but the known knowns and unknown unknowns and all that. Well, that's an unknown unknown squared because we just don't know what's coming across the border and through the border and, and how, if I'm an enemy of the United States, I'm, I'm pushing stuff in in that regard. Uh, and so what else are we missing if we've got four things that we've already missed? The, the border thing just hasn't manifest, and I hope it doesn't. But what else are we missing? And, and that's what scares me. It's sort of what we don't know. And, and are, are we distracted from the core purpose of the Defense Department, which is to protect U.S. citizens and property at home and abroad. Greg. What do you think the administration's response is going to be, and do you see this as the start of something really bad? Yeah, so what I see the administration response in, um, to the killing three U.S. soldiers and wounding 40, um, I uh, response is the operative word. We have no policy right now. We have no deterrence. And so what is the administration – what I would rather see the administration do, Greg, is um, step back, develop a holistic policy to put pressure on Iran, put their finger – put the U.S. finger in the chest of Iran metaphorically and say, stop all this exportation of terror throughout the Middle East and stop your nuclear program, and, and we're going to make you do it because we can, and here's how we're going to do that. And what I would recommend if I were in my old job, uh, which and, and uh, I'm just the opposite of a guy looking for war. Uh, I'm not an isolationist, but I'm right next to one. Um, and and uh, I've had too many soldiers not come home from combat for stupid wars to support any kind of, of war. Um, but to, to keep uh, – we got two things we could do. We could completely get out of the Middle East. Why are the troops there? Ostensibly to fight and prevent the rise of ISIS. That's Sunni. This is Shia we're fighting. I, I have to say that, um, um, you know, if we get out, then we need to get energy independent again so that we're not reliant on Persian Gulf oil. So that's one thing we could get out. Other is go big, and that's where you um, begin to damage oil infrastructure, nuclear facilities in a way that using standoff, no boots on the ground, but just say, okay, here's what we can do and, and destroy a few things. Back off and Diplomacy, or uh, this administration still holds out the hope of negotiating an Iran nuclear deal. I, I think we can see that they're not super trustful right now. So.
So that's what I would either go big or I would go home. That's question in the back. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, in 2014, um, I had a classmate, my roommate from West Point, a Ukrainian guy named Mark Pazlowski, went to, he left Wall Street, went to Ukraine, commanded an infantry company, and was killed on the Russian front. Um, uh, I commanded Ukrainian soldiers in combat in Kosovo when I was 101st Airborne Division uh, Brigade Commander. Um, they're very passionate based upon my roommate's passion. Uh, I knew that they were passionate, and, and they're very technically competent. The, so when everybody was saying, oh, this is going to be over in 72 hours, I knew that was not the case. I was one of the few people on Fox or CNN or whatever saying, this, that, that ain't happening. Um, but where we are now, I, I, I've been saying for a long time, for two years now, where are Bill Clinton and West Clark when you need them? Remember Bill Clinton and West Clark when the Balkan thing was unfolding there in Bosnia and Herzegovina and Croatia, Croatia and Serbia? They locked everybody in a room and date and slid pizzas under the door and said, come out when you have a deal, and they did. And so for, for that, um, you know, I know every, you know, Putin's a bad guy. Yes, very bad guy. He, he invaded Russia he should, or, or Ukraine. He should not have invaded Ukraine. The, but nobody, you didn't see the hysteria that you see today in 2014 and 15 when he invaded Crimea. President Obama just kind of shrugged and it happened. And there was no like, oh, you're a Putin stooge or you're in Putin's pocket or none of that. The divisiveness of the media vis-a-vis -vis Trump, any opportunity to divide the country, divide, uh, to blame, etc., the disservice being done to the American people right now, I thought what happened under Obama was, you know, Okay, they shouldn't have done that, but they, but the Normandy format, which is really Germany, France, Ukraine, and Russia, solved that in Normandy. The U.S. wasn't even really involved. And so they should do that again, and we should have a zone of separation. We should figure it out, and we should, we should lift the, the emotion and the blame, and we should, you know, I don't know what number to believe is accurate on the number of young Ukrainian men and women killed, but it's in the hundreds of thousands. So how long does this go on? I know I don't want my son-in-law, who's in the Army, going to fight and die in Ukraine. That's a really insightful question, Jack. Um, yeah, well, I, <laughs> um, I, you, you know, stovepiped intelligence was the, the notional blame for 9-11, right? Uh, one intelligence agency not talking to the other. So Patriot Act, and we create this intelligence behemoth where you have hundreds of thousands of contractors and depart, uh, the Director of National Intelligence, the NSA, the CIA, DIA, all kinds of IAs. And, and in theory, it all gets fused at the um, Director of National Intelligence level, the CIA. On DIA all come together. They're all part of National Command, th Command Authority. I think it's gotten too big, unwieldy, and there's turf wars over who owns what intelligence. 
And when, when I mean, to, to either we're being lied to, which is entirely possible, and left is lying. that the Afghan National Army could hold or they knew the Taliban uh, and or they knew that the Taliban could overrun them very quickly and they just lied about it or they missed it. Those are the only, it's an A or B choice. There's no in between. And, and the same with, uh, with, you know, we thought the Russian army was 10 feet tall and so strong and we had no faith in the Ukrainians or we just missed the intelligence. Or that was the intelligence we had. Um, and same with Israel. So I, what I think is there needs to be a, a review of all of these intelligence agencies. And, and frankly, many have been weaponized and politicized, right? There's, there's a lot of that going around, and I'm not on either side of this issue. But it's undeniable that they're, they're, the domestic targeting of, by intelligence agencies is happening, has happened. And I think that bifurcation contributes to a, a taking the eye off of national security. And so I think we ought to take a look at that. All the way in the back. current state of readiness in the United States supply chain, I think we're in bad shape. Uh, I was Secretary of Transportation in North Carolina. I had two ports there. I had three railroads, 88,000 miles of highway, um, uh, 72 airports, 62 that I controlled. Um, the the um, 12,000 bridges, the, 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 the infrastructure in our country right now is is um, decaying so rapidly, uh, and and so just internal. You have internal lines of communication, external lines of communication. Can people get into your port? We've widened a lot of ports post Panamax, um, dug out the harbors, deepened the the rivers, Jacksonville, um, Savannah, Charleston, Wilmington, North Carolina. Norfolk was already deep with all the aircraft carriers there. California was already deep. Pacific Ocean is pretty deep. Natural harbors. So, uh, how how are we looking at this contested logistics environment that we talk about? And you know, I'm on the board of advisors of the Merchant Marine Academy, and I, you know, we we you know we look at these. We're graduating these young men and women to go drive ships, essentially, and and. Um, you know, it's it's a challenge to get people super interested in that. So, um, what? Where are we headed from a logistics standpoint? We need somebody to to put a major emphasis on uh, sort of a DoD like emphasis on the Department of Transportation and make that something that people get excited about. Because I'm a geek about it, right? I I I like intermodal stuff. I like moving cargo. Um, from from ships onto rail and having inland ports and and using rail not to chew up roads with trucks and all I think about all that stuff all the time and and I'm just weird like that. Are but, you investing uh, in it? Say again. Do you invest in that as well? Um, well, I I have a, a, a small piece of a cold storage in the port of Wilmington. So yes, I invest money. I invest time in logistics in particular. So we should talk about that. so. Well, I didn't mean to steal this panel here. <laughs> no, you did. You did. It's okay. Patricia wants to say something, but I want to just uh, let you know logistically what we're about to do. Uh, we'll have some final comments. And then the 360 and 361 firm is about roundtables. So we have um, at least the following. We have the business of sports with Jack Wyant and the Formula G team. We have if you don't mind, China, Asia. By the way, five years ago, we had ton of chi tons of Chinese here. What the hell's going on? They just, they just kept, they, they just disappeared. 
You're the man. Just if you want to talk about that, juxtapose this, right? Or you may want to join this other one called Dual Use Defense Cyber and then spy on it. Um, capital Markets, where's John and Mark? Are they still around? Uh, but I want to, at least you have Stephen Burke and, and Barbara. Where's Barbara? Oh. Like uh, Kevin O'Leary, they just come and they go. Got to get them back. All right. Yeah, media stars. Eastern Europe, if you're Polish or half Polish or one-third Polish, put your hand up. So what, is it big new around? Yeah, it counts. Well, I don't want to talk about that comment on Ukraine, though. I don't think we're going to put soldiers at it, but I disagree with you a little bit, my personal. I don't think we're going to put any soldiers into Ukraine, but this I lived eight, year, eight years in Russia. This is a great battle, and, and I think okay, but it's it's us too. Europe has to step up, but we have to step up too. We can't just back away from it. But that's what I heard. I just want to have that discussion. Then, which which is where we could have that discussion. AI quantum energy is part of what you guys had. Optimizing philanthropy next gen. So Peter's not here, um, but you can carry that torch. Maybe write a new song. And venture, although venture might merge with the others. Um, sorry, I get passionate about Ukraine. I'm uh, just pissed at Putin. Um, so, but we're gonna take 10 minutes break, grab a drink, you know, relax, meet some people, and 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 then we're gonna ask the people who can help lead these uh, roundtables to sit at the roundtable. That's the hardest thing about the roundtable: is getting people to sit down and actually, because you're doing your mixing and you're talking and having to wine. So, but I'll be back on the mic in about 10 minutes to make you do that. And uh, thank you to the panel. Thank you for coming all the way down. Come join our 361 firm community of investors and thought leaders. We have a lot of events created by the community as we collaborate on investments and philanthropic interests. Join us. Come join our 361 firm community of investors and thought leaders. We have a lot of events created by the community as we collaborate on investments and philanthropic interests. Join us.